Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty Podcast. This is your host, Brian Eastridge. Cops, carriers, and training. What's the difference anyway? Today I'm going to be joined by uh, my old friend Lee Weems from First Person Safety. We're going to talk about some differences in training between cops and civilians. First, a message from our sponsors. This week's episode is going to be brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. Mountain Man Medical is focused on two core principles. First, build med kits and trauma kits that consist of name brand proven and tested components. Second, make them the most affordable of any company on the market. Check out the full lineup of products and kits at mountainmanmedical.com. And remember, law enforcement officers, firearms instructors, and other professionals, you can save up to 15%. Mountainmanmedical.com. All right. My take on medical. Do it, learn it, embrace it, and always carry a tourniquet. Tourniquet's cheap insurance, ladies and gents. Today we're going to talk cops, concealed carriers, armed citizens. We're going to talk training differences, okay? Training differences, uh, a lot of what we do is similar, but there's a lot of things that we have to do that are very different. So let's bring in our guest. My guest, Lee Weems from First Person Safety out of headquartered in the great state of Georgia. So how's Lee Weems today? I'm doing well. Um, as we discussed before we went on air, I was in Oklahoma this week and I had a copious amounts of Brahms ice cream. So the love of the Lord has been conferred upon me for the last few days and I'm ready to go through life for a while because it's going to be okay. And uh, I'll be good to go here for a while. Yeah. When the, when the pandemic hit, I was kind of like, uh, is Brahms open? Uh, just asking, <laughs> is that essential? Because it should be. So luckily here, things have not been quite as restrictive as in other states. But yeah, the old Brahms, man, it's amazing how many people that, that travel through Oklahoma remark about Brahms ice cream. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So reason I'm, uh, I am I wanted to tap your brain this week is, is police and civilian training. And I know you're involved heavily in both. And uh, from recent social media posts and talking to you, that looks like that's going to be your full-time job and your, your, your part-time gig with first person safety. There is, uh, running the sheriff's office training and then doing civilian classes with first, with your company, first person safety. Is that pretty accurate to say? Yes. Um, uh, for your listeners, I've been the chief deputy of the Oconee County, Georgia sheriff's office for going on 12 years. Um, so that's three terms of office. Those were terms five, six, and seven for my sheriff. Uh, so after 28 years of being the big guy, uh, he's hanging it up. Uh, we have a new sheriff coming in uh, starting January 1st. And uh, my job as chief deputy is politically appointed. And um, he has offered me a position running the training for his administration. So that's when I'm moving to January 1st. I'm looking forward to not being on call. Uh, looking forward to being able to vote um, you know, 100% of my mental energy into training and not having to worry about, uh, you know, whether or not somebody ordered toilet paper for the jail bathrooms this week and uh, just being able to deal with uh, training and teaching our guys. And then, of course, that'll be giving me a little more time. I'll be actually more able to long-term schedule for my business for person safety. And so I'm looking at, um, you know, being able to long-term schedule some classes 
um, and actually market the business because it's always been just whenever I could find a weekend to do a class, I uh, put a class together. Um, but now I'll be able to look out into the, the future and actually plan some things, and that may, uh, you know, may grow the business some. So we'll see where it goes. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's the the boat I'm in between doing podcasts and uh, you know full time police work. It, the the training side, you know, the personal training company that I have it kind of takes a back seat to all that. So I'm, I'm hoping someday to get a retirement <laughs> and then actually yeah. do that, have some time and energy to do that left over. And, uh, I ran two classes this year myself and both of them at the end of it, I was like, I really am struggling to find the time to do this right now. And, and it, just fortunately it happened that I was able to fill the seats, but at the same time, it's like, man, if I had, if I had like a whole day to market this and, you know, get people, get people on board and behind it, it would be a, a much better venture than, Hey, I got next weekend free, <laughs> grab a thousand rounds of yeah. ammo and come on. You know, we're seeing crazy levels of demand around here. Uh, I'm getting lots and lots and lots of inquiries for private lessons, which I had kind of gotten away from uh-huh. uh, as the business had taken off, but I, I'm getting so much demand for it that I'm scheduling some now uh, just because finding one person who has been able to secure enough ammo for a lesson is a whole lot easier than finding 10 people who've been able to secure ammo for a lesson. And plus there's so many first time uh, new gun owners that have you know managed to get out, get a gun, get a few hundred rounds of ammunition, and they need to learn how to use it. And you know, it's, it, scheduling the private lesson for that's a little bit easier. The hard part is, is that range access has become so hard in my area. Uh, it's just getting harder and harder and harder to find a weekend um, or time to get on the range and teach a lesson at all. And you know, that's one of the things I'm hoping that I'll be able to forecast out with the change in the full-time position is now I'll be able to block schedule off uh, with some of the ranges and know that I'm going to be able to be off that weekend to teach the classes instead of calling and saying, Hey, uh, is the range open two weekends from now? Right. And then in two weeks trying to market a class. Um, now I'll be able to start doing that months ahead of time. But again, the, the market's just gone nuts right now. Well, the number one threat to our American way of life as far as being gun owners and the Second Amendment and being able to protect ourselves is really not politics. It's the fact that there's less and less, less opportunity for people to shoot and learn about firearms. And they grow up not being anti-gun. They grow up being non-gun. And I have to give uh, Mr. Steve Anderson credit for that phrase. They grew up being non-gun. And then when they hear some of the proposed legislation that comes out, not knowing what the actual terms mean, like, well, that doesn't sound too bad. And so they don't get all up in arms about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you and I are many of the people that will be listening to this podcast. We hear some of the things that get proposed and we see the instant problems with them and know that it's just going to make our lives harder without doing anything whatsoever to make society at large safer. It's been kind of a, a dynamic shift in perception and we had here in Oklahoma city, we had a series of pretty destructive riots. I won't compare it to Portland or Seattle or somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a number of, a number of people that are associates of mine, friends of mine that immediately recognized that, Hey, I may have to bail myself out of, of a jam. I, there may not be anybody coming to help me 
when I need it right now. And that's not the fault of law enforcement because there's only so many, there's only so much assets. And when, when that's tied up, it's, and we talked, uh, me and Hanny talked about that in a, a podcast, a couple, couple episodes back that based on this, the circumstances, your emergency may not constitute an emergency, <laughs> if that makes sense. So a lot of people that I would say were non-gun, and I've even had a couple of, of close associates of mine that were, they were fairly left, you know, I mean, we, I'm not judgy about somebody's political affiliation or their beliefs. They were good people, but all of a sudden they saw what I had been saying for years and years is man, you know, you, you gotta be in charge of your own, your own safety. And that became painfully apparent within the span of about two days. And those people now I've had people that (laughs) I'll call them the average Hillary voter (laughs) that they've come to my classes with this like thirst for knowledge. And now that that's affected them and been put into their lap, they're like, Oh, I, I see now the other side of this coin and, and, uh, and the first time they went to purchase a gun, it really opened their eyes to the actual process that occurs. And it really changed their perception, just not only on, on guns, but on the state of political affairs and how much, you know, a mayor's race, a city council person's race can really affect you uh, in the immediacy, you know? So, so that's been a very positive thing, but the number one question I keep getting asked, like in my classes, and I'm sure it comes up in yours too, is it's like, well, you're training me this way. Well, how do you train cops? Like, what are the different, like, what's the difference, you know, what, as far as, as far as training, like how, how much difference is there in shooting a gun between being a cop and being a civilian? And, that's triggered me to go, uh, well, we all pull triggers the same way. I mean, the fundamentals don't really change. It tends to be more on the situational side and the, I, I hate to use the word tactical, but the tactical side of things. So, you know, if you can kind of talk to that point about w- what are some of the differences you see between like police training and civilian training? Well, yeah, let me back up to what you were talking about just before we got to that sure. poignant question. You're right. There are a lot of people that realize that the process is not what they thought the process was. You know, the media has told them and the celebrities have told them that they can just get on the Internet and have guns shipped right to their house. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the case, as we well know. And then, one, the, the stores have to have inventory uh, when you do make the decision to go in there and, uh, and make those purchases. And it's not just as simple as everyone has thought has made it out to be in the media. And then for years, you know, there's been that line of thought. Well, you don't really need to be able to protect yourself. You can just dial 911 and the cops are going to come. And then now they're seeing in the, in the grand scheme of things that that's not a good plan. <laughs> that's not that's not even a bad plan. That's no plan. Um you know, that's just not the way the world works. Hopefully we'll respond and we'll be able to get there, but that's just not anything you can count on. And um, think about that too, as far as medical goes. Uh, if the cops can't get there, EMS certainly isn't coming. Yeah, you because know, they're not going to come into an unsecured scene and they shouldn't. Um, but for the people out there, you know, what's the difference in, in the training? The actual nuts and bolts of my core curriculum for 
teaching when I'm teaching cops and the law enforcement side when I'm teaching private citizens is absolutely zero. I teach the exact same techniques uh, for drawing the pistols, you know, aiming the pistol, firing the pistol to cops coming out of a duty holster as I would for someone from concealed carry. Yeah, obviously there's a difference in breaking the retention on a level three duty holster versus clearing a cover garment. But from there, you know, steps two two through four on the presentation are the same. Right. Uh, You know, properly managing the trigger is the same. Mm -hmm. Reloading the gun is the same. Unloading the gun is the same. Every bit of that is the same. Um, There's no magic dust that cops will get that a private citizen wouldn't get. Now, there are some differences in context when it comes to uh, tactics right. versus techniques. The techniques are the same. The tactics may change depending on the situation. Um, you know, the, the private citizen is under no obligation to go into a building and search for a bad guy if there's a reported bad guy in the building. It would be a bad idea for a private citizen to go running into a building because they were told there was an evil man inside. Uh, that's what the cop is expected to do. And so some of the search techniques, everything's like that, you know, searching a building in the dark, that's probably something that a private citizen doesn't need to concentrate on. Right. It's not a bad skill for them to have, but that's a, you know, that's a down the road when you've mastered everything else and you want to start working on other skill sets. Uh, that's something that a private citizen might look at then before a cop, you know, searching a building, you're going to do that constantly. Yeah, daily so sometimes. That, yeah. yeah, that may even become more important than the techniques of using the power. Right. Yeah, I've when I dove off into civilian training, uh, and, and I did that after going to a lot of civilian-centric training classes, uh, you know, whether it be TACCON, some other things, where – I was watching the progression of how people focus on teaching civilians. And the first thing that became very apparent to me was drawing from a holster was, was almost, I won't say an advanced skill, but, but an intermediate level skill. Whereas with the police training, when I, when I get these kids and they got their issued firearm, we've got like 24 hours before they pop a live primer to run them through holstering, reholstering guns, firearm safety, you know, assembly, disassembly, maintaining their pistol. So if you can, if you've been through like the NRA basic pistol course, you know, there's nothing in there about drawing from a holster. And I, it had never occurred to me before I dove off into civilian training that, man, I have a luxury with cops that they got to be there. (laughs) Their butt's in a seat and they got to listen to us talk through, here's how you defeat that retention on a duty holster. And on the civilian side, it was much more centered on operating the gun, like firing the gun and the process of firing the gun. And then the holster became another skill set. Whereas with the policeman, it just was, it was a package deal right from the get go. So that was probably it, the number one thing on my list of like major differences was, you know, holsters to a cop are part of the uniform holsters to the civilian are kind of an intermediate level step after you've gotten 
gun safety and firing and hand, gun handling and all those things. So, and that's a pretty, doesn't sound like much, but that's a pretty stark contrast when you, uh, especially when you're me and you're, you're, or like yourself and you're trying to line out a course curriculum, that's a major factor in it. And the other luxury I think we get with cops is we're pretty much going to give them all the same holster, <laughs> you know, yeah. and a civilian yeah. class, you go, Oh man, uh, there's a lot of stuff I've either never seen or don't recommend in here. So we got to work around that, but, but yeah. And, and, and to your point on the, uh, like your building searches and stuff, I, I look at each one of those as kind of sub skill sets. And I think the progression of, of sub skill sets for law enforcement is it, it's kind of all a one package skill set. Whereas on the civilian sector, you maybe break that down into like deliberate skills. If that makes sense. So when you, when you were talking earlier about, uh, you know, the, the program, like when you teach civilians, do you're, you're talking just the, the mechanics of running the gun, correct? Like that, that's the same. Is that, that was, yeah, yeah, the mechanics of running the gun, I teach exactly the same way no matter what my audience is, whether uh-huh. it be badge toters or private citizens. Um, you, you hit on something very key there as far as one of the differences, though, in, in what you were just saying. With a cop, there is a the presumption that they're going to be carrying the gun on their person in a holster. With a private citizen, you can't start with that presumption because their ownership of the gun may be that's going to be in the nightstand. Yeah. Or it's going to be on or it's going to be on the top shelf of a closet. And that's something as an instructor that you need to know or in a safe that you as an instructor need to know is how are they going to store this firearm? Are they going to carry it on their person? And you know, why spend hours on drawing out of the holster if they're never going to carry the firearm in a holster in public? It's I bought this this pistol that I'm going to keep in the nightstand of my living room. Um and I'm only going to use it if someone comes into my house yeah, and all the other legal parameters are met. Right. Okay. Well, then your, your, your techniques that you're going to be using need to be dealing with retrieving that pistol safely from the nightstand and then deploying it versus deploying it from a holster. And, you know, that, that's two different, two different mindsets. Although, you know, once you get the gun in your hand, everything will be the same, but it will be, where would the gun come from? Um, you know, and you also mentioned holsters, you know, if, if you're teaching for an agency, everybody's probably carrying close to the same gun and close to the same equipment. Um, you know, I know with us, we issue everyone a Glock 17 and a Safari Land holster. Okay, they have to have a certain holster to be able to go through the academy. So that's what we buy them when they get hired and you issue their equipment. Private citizens, you have no idea what pistols are going to show up at the range, and then what kind of holsters are going to show up at the range. That's that's one, that's a big key difference there, um, and that's probably one of the biggest things as far as equipment goes, and what you have to deal with. Um, yeah, that uh, I came. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I came into this job, and and you did too, in a time in which wheel guns were still issued weapons. 
Well, my agency didn't carry them. There were still two agencies in my region. I went to a regional academy that served 10 counties. We still had two agencies that issued revolvers. So everything in the academy was revolver neutral, meaning that everything was loaded to six rounds. Even if you're carrying a semi-automatic pistol, you loaded all your magazines with six rounds. If you went to the state training center, they would mandate how many rounds you loaded into your magazines for every course of fire. So everybody always would run dry at the exact same time. Yeah, I can remember that era. (laughs) You know, and and in the private uh, citizen world, you know, you may have someone shows up with a Ruger LCP standing next to someone that's shooting a Glock, uh, you know, 17 standing next to someone who's shooting a 1911 standing next to someone who's shooting a revolver standing next to someone, you know, shooting something else. And so you have to account for all of that. Now, one of my favorite, favorite teaching moments as far as teaching cops is I used to always get annoyed when my people would show up at the range and I, you know, you tell them to get on the line. Okay. How many magazine rounds do we need to put in our magazines? I'm like, how many do they hold? Yeah. Put as many in there as you can get in there. It'll be okay. And you know, no, 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 no. We need to all run out at the same time. So one day, just because I could get away with this kind of stuff, I stood at the gate to the range and as each individual deputy came to the range. I told them a different number to load their magazines to. <laughs> That's a classic, <laughs> and then, man. And so, like, one would come through. I said, "Yeah, you need to have all your magazines loaded to nine rounds each to start." Next one come through. I tell them eleven. Someone else that comes, I tell them something else. And then I got them all up on the line, and I started running them, you know, through through some, through some drills. And you should have seen the looks on faces when, like, one guy's gun went to slide lock but his buddy is next to him is still shooting and he's just and he looks at his guns like why is my gun not working but his his is still going yeah and then the one guy that would be shooting would still have ammo and he'd look over and he'd see his buddies like empty and he's like oh my gosh i'm going to be in trouble because i, I must have miscounted rounds or misunderstood the instructions and so i waited till that went all up and down the line then i had everyone get holstered and i was like then i told him what i'd done you know, the whole point is to learn to run your gun. Yeah. In your situation. And you know, it's just it's just mind blowing to me to see that happen up and down the line. Well, something something I also kind of became keenly aware of right from the get go is before I toddled off into training civilians with any any regular type of curriculum that I developed was like you said, a lot of law enforcement is still rooted in revolver neutral thinking. And past that, a lot of law enforcement that I see trained to pass a test, if that makes sense. And the beauty of being in the civilian training circle is there's really not a cap, a performance cap Uh, so there's nothing for you to, there's nothing mediocre for you to aspire to. If that, I used to use the phrase, Hey, if you aspire to mediocrity, you'll never suffer disappointment. Right. So with law enforcement in general, and, and this is not a knock because there has to be something that shows proficiency. There has to be, there has to be a driver's test and I, and I call a, a qualification. I call it a certification. Hey, this is, this is driving your car on a closed track. That's nothing more than it, than it is. And it's just to demonstrate you have enough gun handling skill that you can pass a a test. And a lot of law enforcement mistake that as training. And I go, no, I trained you how to shoot so that you could 
achieve this test, but this is not training after, after you've achieved the test. Now you have to train and that's a totally different thing. Whereas you bring people into the civilian circles of shooting there, there's really no set standard of, of what determines that you're good or not. You're, you're determined, your skill level is determined only by your, your own, uh, your own efforts and, and measuring yourself against known quantifiable standards, which, you know, for example, the test 10, 10 and 10, right? So, Uh but there's nobody that's going to say, Hey, load your magazine to 10 rounds chamber around and holster your pistol. And now you're going to present and shoot 10 rounds in 10 seconds. And if you score this, then Dominus Omish, you're awesome. And and you get to go forward. You don't, you don't have that. So one of the things I think that handicaps police officers is aspiring to pass the test instead of aspiring to train with their firearms. So that's a, to me, that's a huge difference and maybe talk to that point a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think that's a huge issue in that the law enforcement side tends to look at, well, I qualified, so I must be good because they set the standard and I've met the standard. Yeah. This was the test that I was given. They told me if I made it 80% or better on this class, on this test, then I'm good to go. Uh, In Georgia, if you fail to qualify uh, in a calendar year, you're, post-certification is suspended post as peace officer standard and training council uh, for listeners as is the certifying body in Georgia. The Oklahoma equivalent is CLEAT mm-hmm. uh, council on law enforcement, education and training. If I remember the acronym correctly. Yes, you do. Uh, Texas is T is T Cole. Every state's got some sort of similar organization. And let's say in Georgia, if you don't qualify at least once every calendar year, you lose your certification until you manage to qualify. And then there are penalties for that. You can only do that so many times. Um, well, okay, the state says that I have to meet 80% on this test or better to qualify and be able to be a cop and still carry my gun. Then why are you upset that I shot an 82? You know, from the training side of the house and the law enforcement side, that's that's a battle that we have to fight. I tend to look at it as it's an administrative box that we have to check. Mm-hmm. I'd love to be able to take everybody out at midnight 30 on January the 1st, line them up, shoot the state call, and check that box, and then we can train the rest of the year. You know, it's 30 rounds of ammo we had to spend on the state course, which, by the way, in 2020 is still a revolver-neutral course. Hmm. Um, you know, we, yeah. we've all checked our box and qualified for this year. Now let's go train. Yeah, we've, we're uh, still shooting a, a revolver-neutral course in Oklahoma. Uh, it the, the time standards have increased by decreasing times and there's there's some other good changes in our qualification tests that have happened but there's no string that's more than six rounds and when i hired on everything was ppc based it was match five ppc and we called it modified ppc there was 7 15 mm-hmm. 25 50 and then 25 again and it was a mashup of uh match one two three one two three and four that really drove the direction of training to this revolver neutral thing. And I still see several officers that carry revolvers and the ones that are still left tend to be more proficient than the average bear that, that, that I've saw I've seen over the years progress and now subsequently retire, but the ones that are still engaged with a revolver and, 
we've it's funny in law enforcement we've we've had the revolver has been there for so long that it has permeated through all levels of training i feel like and not and i'm not saying it's obsolete i i still shoot revolvers from time to time i you know i mean i spent a long time shooting nra ppc so i get it but it having a revolver neutral qualification seems to handicap all of the uh all of the great things and great reasons that we carry a semi-automatic handgun it's like man we got we got more chances we got more opportunity which means more time which it's just a great benefit that we have and i don't think a lot of your average badge toting people see the real distinct benefit right away unless you're involved in some training that's not revolver neutral Right. And let's let's uh, administratively. Yeah, go ahead. Administratively, I love the revolver because it's easy to load and unload <laughs> and show clear. You know, I'm not chambering the same round over and over again as you would the semi-automatic, um, and creating bullet setback issues or destroying the uh, primer uh, pellet. Um, so, for those reasons, I love them. Uh, there's a whole host of other reasons that that they become problematic. I'm actually teaching three blocks of revolver at the tactical conference in March. So if I'm spending, you know, time to spend three blocks on it, I'm not anti-revolver. Right. Uh, but I also look at it and say I can carry six rounds in my uh, K-Frame Smith, or I can carry two and a half times that in my Glock 19 for the same size gun. Yeah, without having and, to do anything else. Right. Just pull the trigger, right. <laughs> you know. Right. I believe your father talked about his shooting when uh, he knew that he had one round still left in his gun and he had more than one bad guy still yeah. left out there. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny, you know, I to kind of break the ice, that was a really intense conversation to be sitting in the room with him while he was going through that. And a little, little aside for the listeners that listened to episode four of The Aftermath, he and I had never sat down face-to-face and talked about that incident. There was pieces of it here and there. And mm-hmm. so there were things that happened before and before that, during the incident, and then subsequently years later that came out in that conversation. So, it, man, it was kind of hair-raising for me. Um, one, I got to have a good chat with my dad. Who doesn't love that, right? But the oh. second part of that was there were aspects of that shooting that I had never I was never aware of, and I'm 41 years old. So, so it was a really excellent thing, but to break the ice in that, and I threw this comment and some of you, I know caught it, but I said, you know, he said, I was keenly aware that I had one round in my gun and there were eight other people there. And he said, I reloaded my revolver in record time. And I said, well, you know, since we're into caliber debates and, and that begs the question, would you have rather had eight rounds of 45 or 17 rounds of nine millimeter, which is totally unrelated to the fact he had a revolver, but, but he immediately goes, I would have rather had 17 rounds of nine millimeter. Like I would have taken that any day of the week. So there again, um, you know, and he grew up in the PPC qualification days. Uh, so he was really, really, and still to this day is a really exceptional revolver shooter. Uh, but, there again, he's like, man, if I would have had a Glock 17, a Beretta 92 in that era, a Browning high power, something that I would have had, that would have bought me more time with less risk, you know? 
and I say less risk, that would have it would have extended the amount of time before he had to reload. So, which would have given him a great advantage there. But, but either way, and let's talk. Let's back that up a bit when we talk revolver neutral. Some of the listeners, because I've got a lot of newer shooters tuned in. Let's describe revolver neutral really quickly. Go ahead. Yeah, what we mean by the term revolver neutral is, is you think about a service size revolver like a cop would carry around in their holster. Uh, we're typically six shot revolvers. Uh, the little small gun that gun stores like to sell every female that walks into a gun store are typically five shot revolvers. Uh, when we say a revolver neutral course, it means that the course of fire, the test that, that we're shooting, is designed around a six-round capacity. So the test may be, you know, the first stream may draw and fire two rounds and repeat that, draw and fire two rounds and draw and fire two rounds, so it equals six. And you may do all that, say, at the three-yard line. And then they have you reload the gun, and then you move back to the seven-yard line for the next, next string. So if I was shooting a semi-automatic, I would have a magazine loaded to six rounds at that point so that I would run out at the same time uh, all the revolver guys would uh, so that everybody would be reloading at the exact same time and it was not uncommon you know it's like saying Georgia the course of fire is still designed around the fact that cops may be carrying a six round revolver versus a say a Glock 17 that is an 18 round right. pistol so that uh, um, yeah so revolver neutral we could sum it up really easily saying there there's no stage that's going to be more than six shots. And if it is, it's six shots with a reload. So every, but right. everything's pretty well based in, in increments of six. So, right. yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I went through the Academy in January of 1999, um, we still had in the, the course that Georgia was shooting back then was called the Georgia double action course was the name of it for Georgia double action revolvers. And we had a a string of fire in the recall course that was based off of the new hall incident. At least that's what they told us in the Academy was you had to have the, the revolver loaded with two rounds. You had to have two rounds somewhere on you in a pocket somewhere, two loose rounds uh, for this is for the revolver shooters. They had to fire those two rounds, do an emergency load with two rounds only, and then get back into the fight with those two rounds. And I think they had 15 seconds or something to do this. Yeah. And because during the New Hall incident, one of the the uh, California troopers was allegedly still trying to load his revolver to six when uh, one of the bad guys walked up and executed him. Well, for us guys that were shooting semi-autos, we had a two-round magazine in our mag pouch. So we had like 15 seconds to draw off our two rounds before an emergency reload and right. our two rounds. What are you going to like, do with do the do other 10? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's just always amusing me. As a matter of fact, in the, in the three blocks of uh, revolver I'm teaching at TACCOM, we're going to shoot that stage of fire where they have to do the emergency reload of the two rounds just to keep a little bit of traditional life. Yeah. I shot that course somewhere in the past, but that's been uh, eye-opening to me. Uh, I, I tell a lot of guys that, that I train with that are not, not police officers. I'm like, you know, your average cop has a ceiling on training. And, and I, I don't mean that as a knock against average, you know, your, your goes to work every day, just all around good, good policemen, but they tend to get into the mindset of there's a ceiling on performance, meaning 
I've got to achieve the test. And even if I shoot perfect on the test, you know, that I, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm proficient. I'm skilled. And they never venture outside of that to see, okay, there's really not a performance ceiling here. You're, you're only limited by your own will to, to continue training. And in the civilian side, the, the interesting mindset I see there is there are some people that I shoot with that I'm like, man, this guy's really proficient yet. They don't have that bar to say, this is what makes me proficient. So it's the complete opposite of average law enforcement officer being, you know, Hey, I, I shot a perfect score on the, the state's qualification to this guy over here. That's, you know, running build drills, sub three going, man, I, I don't really feel like I'm doing that much, you know? <laughs> so they, it's like, they don't have a way to quantify it unless they invest themselves in additional training. Uh, so it's, well, a, it's not knowing it's not knowing what good is right and and, um, and not being able to quantify that unless somebody does it for you or you really spend right. the time trying to figure that out on your own you know i, I could shoot 98s hundreds on the state qualification course and i would go to um training at the state training center in Forsyth, Georgia. And I would always be within the top two, maybe three cops in the class. And I thought I was good. I had won my agency's uh, uh, award for being the top shot in the agency. I have won our marksmanship award every year that it was available. I thought I was good. And then I went to my first IDPA match and got smoked and like, holy smokes, there's a whole different level of good out here. And it's like I've been winning all the go-kart races, but now I took my go-kart and tried to drive it in a NASCAR race. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I found out there was a completely different level of good out there. And now I quickly, once I realized, hey, there's another level of good, and I started expiring to do that, I quickly shot up, you know, through the through the levels in, in, in the competitive world. I'm still, you know, I'm not a grandmaster or anything by that, by that token. But you know, when I realized there's another level out here that I need to achieve and I need to aspire to, I started training to those tests and my skill level increased. And, you know, God bless him. I, I approached a sheriff that I knew runs a smaller agency that just doesn't have a whole lot of resources. And I was involved in a, in a state firearms instructor organization at the time. And I went to the sheriff and I said, hey, you know, sheriff, I love your part of the state. Uh, would you be interested in hosting any training? Could I come in and help you with with your, your with your guys? He says, "No, I, I'm a firearms instructor. We can get everybody qualified." Right. I said, "So wait a minute. You qualify everybody, and then that's it." And so their their standard was, once everyone passed the qualification test, you know, the state qual, then they were good. They were done for that year. Mm. And. You know, our test is, and our standard is, you could shoot in January of, say, 2021 and make an 80 on the state qual. You would not have to draw your pistol out of the holster again until December of 2022 because it's once per calendar year, not every 12 months. The state qualification course, you can miss the entire target six times. Wow. And still pass. Okay, folks, is that the standard that you want coming to save you? Yeah, that's that is a uh, that's a legitimate question, and it's a legitimate concern. Yeah. 
Uh, Now, from the private sector side, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to catch you. No, no, I was going to say, you know, when I when I train my my mentality when I and luckily my agency has been really good at not just punching out, uh, you know, agency or you know the agency standards here in the last couple of years. We've really we've we used to qualify twice a year, and now we've devoted one of our qualification periods during the year to either vehicle tactics or low light tactics or something applicable to where, Hey, we, we punched the state's ticket once a year. Now the pandemics put kind of a little, uh, you know, monkey wrench in that, but you know, we, we do aspire to train better, but when I train recruits, you know, I try to take it with the mentality that I'm not training you to pass the test. I'm training you to save me when I got in over my head, you know, that that's, that's my, the way that I view training is, man, I want this kid that's, you know, 21 years old, that's never held a pistol. When he's coming to rescue me, I want him to be very, very confident in what he's, what he's doing. And some, there's been some debate on that, but I, that for me has been my, my like personal mantra of, you know, I, I care less about the state's test. If you will train this way, you will pass the state's test. Let me teach you how to build confidence. And, and I think about that because the older I get, uh, you know, the worse I am at fighting other people. <laughs> so right. because you tend to hurt yourself, you know, so, right. um, I want somebody coming to my rescue that if they have to make a critical shot, they can do it and go, Oh, that's easy. Right. And, uh, and I'm also not mean to them at the range. This is another little thing. If you're a law enforcement firearms instructor and you've got the, you know, the old stoic, like old hat gruff it's like hey man these are your partners they're they might potentially save your life and you don't want their the the thought run through their head right before they pull the trigger that guy was a jerk to me on the firing line one day so anyway moving on yeah well, you, know, you know that would be one difference too i think between training and private citizens and i know it is for me um i tended to have no tolerance whatsoever uh when i'm dealing with the cops for stupid stuff uh-huh. Uh, but when you're dealing with, with paying customers, you have to have a much different uh, uh, demeanor. And it was funny. I started looking at my reviews from my private sector classes, and then I talked about my relaxed teaching style. Whereas if you interviewed any of my uh, personnel, none of them would tell you that I had a relaxed teaching style. Um, yeah. You know, part of that comes from I expect a paid professional to be a paid professional on the line. I don't expect that from someone who is is not been through that level of training. Um, you know, one other thing on testing is I said awful lot of people on the private sector side that never test their students and give them anything to measure themselves by. And every one of my classes, we shoot some sort of, I've been on the private side, we shoot some sort of performance review. And that's as you come back from more classes, we tend to push that. And I've got certain, you know, things that you can do that, that there's no perfect score on. It's can you beat your score from the last time and to get something to, uh, you know, always compete against. And, you know, you've got to have some level of standard, but you can't let the standard define you. If all you're doing is worrying about the standard and never worrying about the mental programming, and this applies to, you know, cops and private citizens, there's a chance that if you haven't written them, written the mental maps for processing and doing the techniques when you're put under pressure, 
that you're just not going to perform. I call it the blue screen of death. Yeah. You know, back from the old window, early windows units. Yeah. And they would finally give up the ghost to get that little bitty, you know, blue speck in the middle of the screen. And then it would spread and the entire screen would go that crazy color of blue. Mm-hmm. And that computer was shot and fried. Your hard drive had crashed and you had to go get the, go get a new hard drive and you'd lost all your data unless you had it backed up on disk and everything. Um, training should include, you know, mental processing, developing the mental maps, and, you know, teaching people to function and think with the gun in their hand. Yes. If all we do is we te- take people and we teach them to shoot a qualification course, be it private sector or, uh, you know, public sector with the cops, if all we're doing is teach them is to perform to a test, and then we never put them where they have to test those skills with any kind of actual real pressure, you know, the first time they're having to make a shoot, no shoot decision is when they're actually on making a shoot, no shoot decision in real life. Yeah. You failed as an instructor. You have absolutely just failed as an instructor. Our job is to get people ready uh, to make those ultimate decisions. And that involves more than just the techniques. What I, what I find training police officers is with the blocks of time that we have this, this lengthy period of, you know, we've got two weeks with like eight to 10 hour days, uh-huh. sometimes 12 hour days of, of, okay, now we've got you proficient. Now let's, let's put you into circumstances that are less than perfect, reduced value targets, different scenarios, situations, shoot, don't shoot. And, you know, we have the luxury of a, a fat simulator, the firearms training simulator where you're, right. you know, you're shooting laser beams, all that, all those things uh, on the civilian side. I quantify that to try to make the operation of the gun exist in the subconscious plane. And it's hard for me to really get into the minutia with cops because we're on a training schedule. That's pretty rigid, but, but it happens when they're in recruit training because it just be, you know, they're going to pull their gun out of the holster and shoot three, 400 times a day. Whereas in the civilian sector, I really have to narrow that down to let's get you to run the gun subconsciously so that you don't tie up the bandwidth necessary to make a decision. And then, and, and I don't personally do any of the like scenario based training right now, because I just, I don't have a, a large uh, battery of students right now because of the way the world is right now. There's right. just not a lot of, not a lot of ammo and, and people wanting to get into classes yeah. with other people right now. But I try in my, my skill builder classes to go, look, the reason I'm teaching you to run the gun on this subconscious level is because you don't want the blue screen of death. You don't want your brain to freeze. You want to, the, the shooting portion is very simple the decision-making process is very elaborate and it dynamically changes by the microsecond. So the operation of the handgun does not need to tie up the frontal, you know, decision-making cortex of your brain. It just needs to either happen or not. Anyway. Yeah. That's all some, uh, very good points, man. I think we could, we could dive off into that like training technique, rabbit hole. Uh, we we could dive. We could dive into there pretty deep. I think you and I are both pretty, uh, you know, pretty fluent in that language. Um, if you, if you could sum up the main difference between police firearms training and 
armed citizen firearms training, if you could find one thing that was the critical difference, what would it be? Time. Time? Time. Because you have the time with the cops, right? That's that's what yeah, you're... Well, you know, yeah, if you're teaching, a say, a class full of academy cadets, well, you can do use blue guns, which for your audience, if you're not a blue gun is a inert gun it's just a solid piece of plastic it's not a working firearm but we can do that in a classroom that's not range time that we're actually spending you can do that you know when the students come by from lunch and before they dive into you know a briefing on case law you can spend five minutes on working uh, techniques from drawing the pistol from the holster you can do all that kind of stuff without ever firing around whereas you know your private citizen You've got them from anywhere from, say, four to six hours, maybe eight hours on a Saturday or a Sunday or a two-hour private lesson. And that's that may be the only training they ever come to. Yeah. Um, yeah so you've, you've got more time with the, uh, with the public sector, the professional students, I'm going to call them just for lack of a better term. Um, you know. I can actually mandate things with them. I can't mandate things with the private citizen. They're, they're a client and they're coming to me for a service. And it's, it's whether or not they want to keep coming back for that service and how much of their uh, time can they invest? How much of their fortune can they invest? Uh, whereas the, the law enforcement side is, well, they're being paid to be there. Everything's being provided for them. Um, so I think time is the biggest thing because, you know, I know you go to a lot of training classes on your own. You see the same people in classes over and over and over and over again, just because that's their thing. They invest in it. They want to be good at it or they enjoy it. And, you know, it becomes a passion for them. And so that's why they get good and they don't understand why, you know, guys are getting paid to do it for a living just don't have the same the same enthusiasm for it that they do um by the same token the cops it's just another day on the job yeah and carrying that pistol is no different than driving that patrol car it's no difference than writing a report there's it's just it's the time they choose to invest in it themselves yeah i think that's really wise and i was thinking along when you said time i was like man i wonder if he's going to say time He's going to say, <laughs> so yeah, that that's, that's exactly right. A hundred percent spot on it, When I have professional students that are getting paid to do what they do, man, I can mandate their time down to the minute of, of, and maximize every second of their day to train. And you just don't have that luxury with the civilian sector. Maybe, maybe we need to start an in-house 10 hour a day, uh, civilian training, something. I think, although I think Gunsight already does that. So, um, well, you know, it costs a lot of money to run one of those facilities. Yeah, and that's why the tuition at Gunsight is so expensive. Yeah. And there's just not a whole lot of people that can afford or that make that time priority to go spend 40 hours in a class at Gunsight and all the travel that goes along with it. You know, it's that's why most of the private sector training is done on the weekends. Uh, whereas the cops, it's a work day. Um, you know, it's hard to sell a 40 hour Monday through Friday class into the private sector world. And 
for just you know how many complete total family units want to blow the whole family's vacation budget on a trip to Gunsight, right? Or a similar facility. Now, I would love it. Um, yeah, yeah. You and I might be yeah. good. <laughs> hey, Mama, yeah. we're going to Gunsight. See you next week. But yeah, or yeah. or any of the other, you know, Thunder Ranch or somewhere. But that's absolutely true. You know, when when I dove off into uh, excel or trying to excel in the, the civilian sectors of training. Um, and I mean, TACCON, I love, I, I went the first time last year and I, I actually, you know, I made some lifetime friends there and, uh-huh. and learned a lot of good information and got a lot of perspective. It, I call it the buffet of training. It's like, Oh, well, which 10 am I going to go to today? And, uh, yep. But that being said, I mean, financially, that was a, that was a good, a, a sizable investment for me to do that. Right. And it was worth every penny at this point. So, uh, yeah, time, time and money. Well, you know, just it's one of the things that you look at for what it costs for a student to go to a two day weekend class, if they have to travel, everything that's associated with that. Yeah. They got to build in the Brahms budget, man. <laughs> the, they got to bring it, build in the ice cream budget and the barbecue that's budget. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, ice cream and barbecue are very important. So I don't know if I can sacrifice that for ammo. It's a good thing. I work for the government yeah. and I, I'm paid to do that. Well, so, well, any final thoughts, you got anything on the horizon in uh, Lee's world there? Well, you know, as we discussed earlier, I'm about to make a career transition and that's going to allow me more time to delve into my, one of my favorite topics that is the training. I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, folks can find me at firstpersonsafety.com is my webpage or first person safety on Facebook. And um, I will be venturing out to some new places. I'm going to teach a class in Ohio uh, next year. Dave Spalding is actually going to host me. And it's kind of fun that somebody I've hosted is turning around and hosting me. He's trying to help uh, uh, jumpstart uh, my business out into more of a greater audience. And I very much appreciate that, that he's taken that interest. Um, uh, one of the things I'm going to do when I when I have a weekend where I'm on no call, I'm actually going to read a novel that has nothing to do whatsoever with firearms training and, um, and work. I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to turn off my cell phone and I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to enjoy reading a book and uh, clear my head for a weekend. So but after that, and once, once the ammo is back out there, we'll be hitting the range every weekend. So uh, Rob Beckman on firearms trainers podcast, who's also part of concealed podcast network there. He has a question he asked at the end of every one of his podcasts. He said, what books are you reading? So you said novel, what books are you reading? Well, I haven't picked out uh, what that first book's going to be. Cause like I said, I want it to be something completely and totally unrelated. Um, as far as reference books and everything, I've taken an interest in instructional design here lately and so I've been uh, looking for reference material on that and adult education models. And I've picked up some old core books like Kimmel Wright's uh, books on pistol and revolver shooting and just trying to go back and study more of the historical context of training. Excellent. Well, all right, Lee. I'm going to go ahead and wind this episode down. Right. want to thank our guest this week. Lee Weems from First Person Safety. There'll be a link to his website in the description. As always, this was 
Cops and civilians, what's the difference? What's the training differences there? If you would, please uh, please shoot us a subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're on all the major platforms. Check out the website, offdutyonduty.com. We have a comment section there under each episode. If you like what we're doing or if you hate it, send us a comment. We read a little mailbag there a couple weeks ago, and I'm waiting to get some more good feedback from you guys. Also, check out Mountain Man Medical at mountainmanmedical.com. Law enforcement, firearms instructors, and other professionals can save up to 15% on the medical kits from Mountain Man Medical. All right, guys. See you next week. Training and Consulting LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions. Follow all firearm safety rules. Consult with a competent firearms instructor and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.